0: We are going to energise the country. Stop Brexit.
1: No more Mr Nice Guy. Shameless and This is a great
0: idea. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'm joined by a, a great British actor and writer, Stephen McGann, to discuss a BAFTA award-winning <laughs> TV series... The Hanging Gale. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Hello there, Will. Nice to be here. It's great to have you on. Uh, Now, to begin with, I'd just like uh, to ask, do you think you could uh, explain what the series is about for those who might um, not know what it's about?
2: Right. Um, Many, many moons ago, over 25 years ago now, um, I had an idea with my brother Joe to tell the story of my, basically the story of my family history, which was related to the Irish potato family, I wanted to go back and in four parts in a series, The Hanging Gale is a story of a, an, an absolute national and international disaster, one of the, the greatest causes of human movement in modern um, history, expressed through a single family, it's a fictional family, it's not my own family's personal history, but it's all of the circumstances which led like for instance my own family to live in Britain rather than be in Roscommon in Ireland and um, so it was a four part series for the BBC, went out on a Sunday night in 1995 I think
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and it was all related to the the failing of a potato crop, if you don't know what the potato famine is, very very briefly um, the Irish in the 1800s for the first half of the, the 1800s um, existed and in fact thrived on a very precarious crop, being the potato. The potato is incredibly nutritious and the poor population of Ireland, then of course, administrative and ruled as part and inside the British Empire. Um, they managed to subsist remarkably well on this single unique crop which was prone to periodic failure. In the mid-1840s, they had reached near starvation for a number of years in the first half of the 1800s, but in the mid-1840s, disaster struck. The potato blight, which still affects crops today, struck um, the Irish crop, but continued to strike the Irish crop for a period of about four or five years. It became Um, it basically wiped out the Irish population, it caused the emigration which we later understood as an Irish reality, it caused political strife, it probably led to the beginnings of the troubles as we now understand them, it led to the rise of Irish nationalism it was a national disaster it was a disaster as much for the, well not as much, but it was a disaster that also affected the British as well
0: um now, in the series, uh, you mentioned uh, Irish nationalism there. In the series, uh, your character, Daniel Phelan, is yeah. involved um, with the sort of more radical Irish um, activism. Uh, whereas uh, Liam, uh, Father Liam, uh, played by your brother Paul, uh, he uh, attempts to get more attention to the, uh, to the failure of the crop. By writing um, to the to the Times and trying to publish accounts of what uh, what was happening, Ooh. how do you think these um, these two sort of uh, sides—the more sort of like the, the radical side mm. and the, um, the 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 more communicative, the perhaps more uh, literate side um, of the responses to the famine? impacted on the way that um it was seen around the world yeah it it,
2: uh, that's an interesting question it's a complex question too when something disastrous happens like this the the levels of the mess up as it were the levels of lack of response there there are a lot of ways in which um it's scarred uh, i think it's looking from the outside it's scarred the the modern irish mind because There wasn't one villain and one angel in the middle of all of it. And there were many attempts by many people on all sides to try and ameliorate the problems that were presented to Um, them. Radicalism only grew up in the, I think, hand-fisted and sometimes, um, uh, frankly, uh, wicked, Um, ignorance back in Britain but not exclusively ignorance but also the lack of understanding of the British um, to listen to the needs and the cares of the people suffering um, at the parliamentary level led to the rise later on of the problems which which Britain later had um, in the modern age with Ireland. So therefore the different voices you had the radicals you had early radical movements there wasn't the irish republican army at that time but there were organizations like the molly maguires and the ribbon men these were throughout the the 1800s ireland learned to to be secret ireland learned part of radical ireland learned to, to become guerrilla movements and to hide themselves. And a lot of people would argue better than me and more expert than me, that um, the reason that came around was a desperation because at a national and a, 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 a governmental level, in Ireland was signally being failed by, by structured law and by organization. The public works, for instance, were a scheme set up to try, a wonderfully Victorian scheme set up to try and provide aid to the starving Irish. But being Victorian in its character, and very British in its character, it had an inbuilt bigotry against the Irish. I Mm. believe them work shy. So the public works were predicated on the idea that you would give people Indian corn, they're called, corn imported from the United States. Instead of the potatoes that were no longer there, you would give them starvation rations. But to do that, you couldn't simply give the Irish this food because they were considered work shy. And it was considered to the Victorian mind that it would encourage more idleness, even though these people were starving. So what they had to do for their corn was they had to go out and do public works. You, you basically, it was job creation. You created roads in the west of Ireland. Roads that, that weren't asked for, that went nowhere. But you have to, the the poor and starving people have to be seen to be working to work for their corn, even though they were in the advanced stages of starvation. It was this kind of, if you're being a most kind, ham-fisted, bigoted, through the wrong filter view of the problems out in Ireland. At its best, and at its worst, it was simply ignoring the reality of it and enabling radicalism to develop underneath the surface. That was then expressed as a character I played in in The Hanging Gale. And Paul's character as the priest, there were always a priestly class there. There were people involved in politics there. There were people involved in social care. There were landlords who were Irish. There were sellers and merchants who were Irish. So these people were compromised by the situation. There was profiteering by the Irish, and and you've got to say, you've got to accept also there would have been Irish merchants who profited from the misery of their fellow people, that wasn't the main driving force but it would have been a hangover and a side effect of the complexity of that awful bloody situation and perhaps the drama you have to show that all mm. you can't simply show one, it wouldn't be fair simply to show one side however the overriding thing was that it was at best and at kindest, it was spectacularly badly and badly handled and probably quite institutionally cruel and the problems caused by that are still a scar to today.
0: Mm. Uh, now um, you mentioned the uh, British response and in the series uh, uh, there's a lot of ire. He's directed uh, against the character played by uh, Michael Kitchen, who is the, the land agent, uh, William Townsend. Now, there are, there are parts of the series where his character seems perhaps a bit more sympathetic uh, towards the plight of the Irish, and then there are other times when his character is really quite harsh and quite brutal yeah. um, to the, uh, the people of Ireland. How representative do you think that, is of land agents at the time?
2: I see you know some land agents, it's interesting, some land agents, some, mm. and I would I would count them as a as a profound minority, um, were very kind. So if you said, oh nobody, everybody was cruel, no that's mm. pantomime. That's not, not really the case. That's the first thing to say. And some were unspeakably cruel. Um, and land agents were different. They were as different as the people the attitudes, the way they work with the local people in their care. Um, That was the first thing. The second thing is a more general point about historical drama, which is interesting as regards someone like Michael Kitchen's character, is whenever you're going into history, and I'm I'm also, my other half, as as an adapter of historical drama, Mm -hmm. drama, and one of the fascinating things about history, even recent history, is that you've got to try, try and transplant your mind with a, 90, here we are, 2019 mindset, back to the minds and the mores of people who may as well be alien to many of the things we understand these days. So when you're thinking about Michael Kitchen's character, you're saying, well, it might have been absolutely right and proper for this man to express a Christian care in the way and the filter, the way he understood it, but also like the sort of, um, uh, that strange sort of empire mindset of uh, the great white, you know, carer for his people, and you know, the empire were the children of these people. We find that a monstrous construct now for a lot of good reasons. But what's interesting when you go back to drama, is to talk, because you're going back to try and get into the heads of people. And you're trying to look at evidence to say, well, how did these people live their lives? How did they get up in the morning? What was the moral world in which they lived? A lot of it was to do with their with their religion, the way that God had made the poor man at his gate, or the Irish peasant in his placken, mm. And the English overlord, by his part and his duty, was to care for the people. But if the people stepped too much out of line... And if the people didn't do things in the proper Christian Victorian way, then it was right to bring out the cane and it was right to do those things. So those moral structures, sometimes you look at those things, beautifully scripted as it was by by Alan Cubitt, because what, what me and Joe did is we had we had a treatment, so we worked on a detailed story idea, a treatment, but it was scripted up by the brilliant um, and much garlanded Alan Cubitt. And, and I think he brought out very, very cleverly that this 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 funny this different world, looking at an alien in a different planet, you know the past being a foreign country, as they said, and and this foreign specimen of someone you vaguely recognise, someone you can see goodness in, and then you get interested that you see this other brute turn in them and the, and his desires and his cares get twisted up in the disaster affecting everybody around, basically. Everybody is ruined by this. I believe Britain is ruined by this. Britain's actions, like any great nation's actions, Britain Britain, Britain can blight itself and has done many times because if one covers something up, if one if one is a brute, one cannot shake that brutality easily off and resolve it with other things that you truly are. And a bit expressed in the relationship of Michael Kitchen. Um there are there are good things in this man, but if those things don't resolve, then that that can be ruin. There is ruin in
0: that. There is compromising. You know. Mm. Uh, now, uh, you you, you <laughs> mentioned the, the um, sense of um, Christian responsibility and the 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 whole uh, underlying theme of this sort of like this. Sense that uh, the, the the British were the uh, were the sort of uh, white Christian saviors. Do you think that part of the tension that existed around the famine was partly because Ireland was mainly a Catholic country and Britain was predominantly a, a, a Protestant nation? Do you think that that was part of the the reason that there wasn't perhaps more support for Uh, the Irish during the famine?
2: I think that um, here's an interesting if tenuous that you cannot remove, and I am no expert, I will say this and and my disclaimer straight away, I'm not a great historian of Ireland I am an expert in the the, the intricacies of Irish history I know a little but what I do know um, in that time was that you cannot remove from what then happened in the mid-1800s in the famine, from the Act of Union, I think it was 1801, and from the penal laws which affected the Catholics in, in, in the previous century leading to the 1800s. Um, Catholics weren't treated the same. Most people in the nation were Catholics. And a, with the rebellions that had happened and the alignment of, of people, somebody put it beautifully I can't remember now, in Irish history, the great tragedy of the relationship between the British and the Irish throughout history is every time the British seemed to rise in the world and have a moment of gain, it seemed to be Ireland's doom. Hmm. And every time England was in peril, Ireland saw a gain from that. It's like two sides of a seesaw and they've never been resolved Hmm. in peaceful alignment. Now, for the Catholics, I think you know you touch on the right point where their catholicism mattered but the catholicism Mm. was all tied up already with the politics of their treatment for instance until the emancipation i think it was in the 1830s the irish couldn't even the catholics couldn't even be in government Mm. they weren't allowed certain things it was it was a bit like in other nations where jewish people weren't allowed to be in you know, you couldn't go, go, go quite high up. You couldn't be in, in principle. It was a kind of apartheid. And it came because of the earlier rebellions, suppressing of, of the population of the Irish. Basically, you could take the Anglican shilling. You could join the Church of Ireland. And especially during the famine, there were times when, when Catholics converted to the Church of Ireland there were times and in places where that that couldn't make it easier for them there was always this this degree of suppression on the catholicism which which was inextricably linked with politics coming in from the previous century so that's one thing and then there's this more philosophical side to the catholic nature which was to do I think with with suffering it's the nature of suffering in this world for for um, for salvation in the next, which might have, which might have fed in psychologically to it, but I think the 1800s is a gradual story of. At the beginning, one might argue that at the beginning of the 1800s and throughout the intermittent famines before the mid-1800s, the Irish were not a nation in in their mind. They didn't see themselves. There wasn't a movement, a solid, clear movement. For Irish nationalism, my God, by the end of that century, there was every kind of movement, not simply in Ireland, but interestingly enough, in the Irish diaspora, where, I, I, where my forebears ended up in Liverpool. There were actually Irish nationalist MPs in north of Liverpool, who were, even though they were in, in England, they were campaigning for something back in the old country which early in that century had never been thought of. And one could then argue that it was the actions then of British power expressed through Ireland at that time which crystallized a narrative of nationalism which wasn't there. So it wasn't just Catholicism, but it was the way that Catholicism had been placed in the hierarchy and how that then fused into Catholic politicization, Catholic radicalism. So, so Catholicism, as it later did in the Troubles in the North, became inextricably linked. Religion became inextricably linked with political alignment. And so, if you look for the roots of what what certain politicians in Britain, even nowadays, if you look in recent history, uh, I can't remember who it was. You'll tell me, Will. But you know, the, the minister for Ireland who came back with wide eyes and said, "Oh, I never realised that 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 you know." Uh, and, uh, Protestant people tend to vote for one political side in Northern Ireland and Catholic people vote for the other. Yeah. Like, never ever, this is the Northern Ireland minister, like, like page one stop. But the roots of that, I think, have the roots right back in the 1800s. They have where by treating a religion, a religious um, huge sector of the population politically differently, combined with starvation, combined with ill treatment, combined with with um, desperation fused into a radicalism that was then inextricably tied in with the religious faith.
0: Mm, I, I wonder, um, just uh, going on from that, do you mm. think that the the way that uh, the relationship between Ireland and England is now had the famine not happened, do you think that there would be the same sense of anger, the same sense of of, of justified hatred at the way that the Irish were treated, that is then fed down into later generations, or do you think that the way that Ireland and England would have interacted now, had the the famine not happened, been entirely different?
2: Really, I mean that is a $64,000 (laughs) million, but it's a fascinating question. How can I answer that? First of all, I would say, regarding the family, there is absolutely no doubt that the roots of the troubles to understand Ireland is a 500, 600-year project. You cannot separate the tensions and the troubles that, that afflicted my young life and the lives of people living in Ireland right now, right today, you cannot separate family from that. You also cannot separate for people in the in the loyalist community. You cannot separate the 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 modern striving of identity you know, from. The, 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 the transplantation of people in the 1700s, you can't, it's hundreds of years old, this. You can't just wave it away with your hand as an inconvenience mm-hmm. to both sides. You can't do that. That's why one of the great wisdoms of the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement was a, a very grown up, wise, difficult, complex acknowledgement that on both sides that one cannot take the will to exist from either side, because by doing that, you'll have to acknowledge the complex history on both sides. I think that was so deeply wise, and that's what we risk throwing away with our carelessness in the process with Brexit now. Um, back to the famine, I think the famine was inextricably linked to the sharpness of the rebellions of the 1916s, the, the partition in 1922, it's, it's a development of the Irish Republican Army, the provisional IRA, the real IRA. So, yes, it's in there. Would it have happened had the famine not happened? And, of course, there are so many variables. You cannot say that, no, it would never have happened. Would it have been different? Very possibly. So, um, so vexatious has been the relationship between Great Britain and Ireland. There have been chances throughout history where opportunities have presented themselves for a form of peace. There have been missed chances throughout history. 1922, I would personally regard as a missed chance to to get it right, causing more heartache on all sides. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there would still have been. Um, tensions in the relationship between these two places but those tensions may have been able to find a process like later happened by which both both countries could respect each other and begin to move on when we did the hanging gale it was a very specific very outrageously naive we were we as four English boys with mm. Irish blood, incredibly naive. In fact, our naivety got us through because nobody in Ireland was attempting to do this because it's such a wound. And when we went over to try to to do this, people saw our sincerity and came out, thank God, to to, to bring their talents and skills to it. But really, it was um, to to come back to the BBC and to show the British, a part of their history that they had actually not been given the respect to see some drama in an open light. And at the time when it was shown, a lot of people said, ooh, you know, yeah, some newspapers are not going to like this, and ooh, you know, the British aren't going to like being seen. In this. You know what? They were fantastic. Ratings were fabulous, awards were won, but my favourite exchange um what in Britain was when it first went out, I was on a train into town and some woman come over to me and she said, it's you innit? You're, you're one of those boys innit? You've done that Irish thing on telly and I
3: thought, oh god, here it comes.
2: We're gonna get it in the neck. And she, this woman said, I think it's terrible what we did to them Irish. I think it's bloody awful. But what I then found was the British, the people are fine. The people can look at these things in context, whether you have our behavior in India. You know, if you have an empire like this, if you do what we did in our past, we're all grown-ups. We can look and contextualize those things without um, making ourselves childishly trying to shove some things under the carpet. I believe we're bigger than that. (laughs) <laughs> to the Irish, it was an interesting thing for the Irish I knew over there. It was an interesting exercise in, in, in being confronted with something none of them particularly wanted necessarily to look closely at because it was painful. This is painful. It, it, it's a form of starvation it's subjugation for some people. And also for people on the other side, you've got to understand that. We, it was a wonderful cross-community project. BBC Northern Ireland was very much cross-community.
3: Mm-hmm. Our,
2: our crew was half from the Protestant community, half from the Catholic community. Some people came up from the Republic, some people were living in the six counties in good Protestant communities. We filmed in parts of the Protestant North, we filmed in parts of the Republican South. We were crossing the border at the time when there were still soldiers on the border. At that time, With, with a crew that talked and, uh, felt fellowship. And a wonderful thing, I, I go off at a tangent, something I think is really worth bringing up from that young girl, is, is that when we were filming, the, the ceasefire of 1994 happened,
3: Mm.
2: while we were actually out there filming. And, uh, which uh, went, for context, what happened in the ceasefire is it was the first, if you like, non-gunshot in the peace process. It was the first time. What happened was the IRA declared a historic ceasefire. They basically said, we've been talking to each other on all sides. We are going to put our hands up and say, today, we are going to put down our weapons right now and talk. And they made a speech, and it was such a momentous moment. So it's the first opening salvo, or
3: non-salvo,
2: in the campaign. The peace from what eventually became, after a few hiccups, the Good Friday Agreement. On set that day was the most remarkable feeling for all the people on all sides. There was tearful relief, I get tears in my eyes even talking to you now about it.
3: Mm.
2: There was tearful relief, and this remarkable maturity on all sides. Um, Protestants talking to Catholics, saying, you know, I like what they're saying. Do you like what your guy's saying? Yeah, I think that your guys got a lot of wisdom here. And you realized, from a visitor like me and my family were, you realized, A, exactly what it means, B, what it has cost, and C, how we must, as English, even though I have, I have Irish blood, I am English, have what the efforts we must go to to understand this situation. I'm right up to Brexit now to understand what a border means, to understand how in blood that border was made and fought over, and how or both those people that day, how they so wanted peace and it all cost all of them. And I will never forget that, and that informs all of my desires for the modern Irish Republic, for those wonderful six counties, whatever faith anyone has there, or whatever side of any community they live on. I want the same thing all of them on my film set wanted that day. The the problems that go back are all back to things like the famine, but even back to Cromwell, for God's sake, you know, William of Orange. Now, you can move on from them, but you have to understand why they're valid to people, the amount of blood that's being spilled, um, and respect move on to respective communities and everybody meeting somewhere in the middle. You know, and and we cannot come in Britain cannot make the mistake of A ignoring Ireland again and B considering that British solutions are an answer to Irish problems, like we've always done. It's the biggest mistake and it means we kill and not only other
0: people, we kill ourselves as well. um, you, you mentioned that the this sense of that, when when you were making the series, that there was this sense of coming together and this be- be- beginnings of the healings of the the very sort of like deeply uh, intrinsic wounds that had been there for for, for so long, and you you mention this in um, your book, Flesh and Blood, and you uh, you talk about um, how it felt. To um, your ancestors had left Ireland during the famine and then to, to come back and to, to, to make um, make the series, was there something cathartic um, for, for you and for, the, for the, the rest of your family to have this sort of like this moment of having left Ireland because of this um, of, of this great tragedy to be able to come back. And to, uh, to to show other people the, uh, the the absolute horror of what happened, and to sort of like let that that deep uh, pain come out in a way that could help people understand.
2: Yeah, I, I think that I think that's true. It was deeply cathartic to us. Why? Because drama, when you try to make it your best, is cathartic. It, it, that's that's literally almost you know from the Greek that that's what you you have a purging you come to that great old phrase from from um, the South African um, Mandela years truth and reconciliation truth and reconciliation I'm a great mm-hmm. drama is very powerful for truth and reconciliation one should never be scared of the light and shade that lies within your own personal history as a human character, your family's personal history, the things that I have. one shouldn't be scared of the light or the shade of that. In my own family tree, I've got some disreputable people in it. And I, in my book, Flesh and Blood, I, I almost revel in the fact that some of them were not the most upstanding of citizens. So I don't, it's not a hagiography, it's not hagiography, it's not, It's not, you know, whitewashing of things. I don't like that. Actually, we're bigger than that. And and drama is more effective and catharsis is more effective. When you actually bring this stuff out and say, this is terrible. This is terrible. But here we are now. And I'm not them. I'm not Michael Kitchen's character. I am here. I'm not you. I'm not the modern Irish Republic either. You know, and, but, but here's where we are. What do we think about this? What do we all think about this? Shall we get an idea or a view about this and can we move on? Truth and Reconciliation, ironically, as I always touch, also touch on in the book, you know, I talk a lot in my book about what then happened. If you like, part of my book is, 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 After we fled, so we get to Liverpool in one of the worst slums in the British Empire. The Irish who fled to Liverpool ended up in appalling conditions in which my family um, toiled for 30 years. Three decades they were in some of the most spectacular slums. And the thing is that that, in a way, is it's like sort of The Hanging Gale 2. It's like the sequel. It's what happened to my family afterwards, if you like. But also I touch on in my book that, that you that you you went the attitudes and the 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 injustices perpetrated even about that diaspora, that ghetto if you like, the Irish ghetto that went on in Liverpool, still afflicted my family right into the twentieth century. And I argue, I make a, a more a more difficult argument, if you like, a more a more extended or ambitious argument, to say that a lot of the things surrounding the Hillsborough disaster, the football disaster, inherent um, in Herenton, which allowed that libel to take hold, go back in the British mind to an attitude towards Liverpool people that itself can trace itself back in the British mind to the Irish people who form a lot of the part of the Liverpool character and you can actually trace a thing back to old bigotries manifesting themselves through disaster in a responsibility for their own um, wrongdoing or starvation, or in this case, suffocation. And I make that, I can't make that argument here because it's too complicated to make, but I make it in my book. But the reason I wanted to bring that up is the Hillsborough disaster is nearer than it's ever been to a final healing of a wound because the best way to heal a wound was the same way in which you finally started to heal the wound of Bloody Sunday, which is to acknowledge it happened, and then when you acknowledge it happened, you validate those people who experienced it on all sides, then you can bring them together. You, first of all, justice comes in and says, guys, this really happened, we're sorry. This actually didn't take place. Lots of people were saying it didn't, it did. So let's start from the point that it did, let's now talk to the people and say, let's hear about your pain, let's hear everybody's explanation, and that's the way you move on. That's how dramas can be made, that's the purpose of drama within that context. But only when you have truth and reconciliation can you get catharsis like with some of those poor families, like with some of those poor families in Bloody Sunday, connected again all the way back hundreds of years. You have those things. And, but only when you acknowledge them. And so the final point about all of the, the purpose of drama in *The Hanging Gale*, the final point I would make is support for my fellow British, which is to mm-hmm. say, to the ladies, my own citizens. And I, and I, you know, express my, my my country very clearly here. Is to say, we can say this. We're bigger than this. We can say this. The sky does not cave in. It didn't cave in acknowledging Bloody Sunday. It doesn't cave in acknowledging, um, acknowledging Hillsborough. It doesn't cave in acknowledging the famine. And it didn't at the time with the hanging gale. Its figures express the desire that the British are a great people. They are perfectly capable of acknowledging their own, of acknowledging their own history. Their only problems come in are for those minorities in various, um, Elites of various places—if you like—I hate that word. Actually, various constituencies in the nation who might not want to acknowledge their history because it breaks a narrative of something else, you know. But I think only mm. by bringing things out can you move on.
0: Well, uh, I think that was a a great response, and it has been wonderful to have you on the podcast, Stephen. I think this has been a a, a great expression of what drama can do. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Will. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Hello and welcome to The Debated Podcast. In this part of the podcast, I'll be speaking to David Llewellyn, a great writer for Big Finish, about his series uh, about Marcus Tullius Cicero. Hello, David. Hello. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for (laughs) having me. Why do you think that... um, uh, Cicero, a figure that lived uh, two thousand years ago, is still so compelling to audiences today.
1: Um, I think because of how documented his own life was. So mm. I think, for, for one thing, he's he's a kind of he is a, he was a genius mm. um, in terms of understanding rhetoric and and so on. But I think his, he documented his own life, and he's one of the first major figures in history whose life is well documented before. Mm before the Roman Republic, before the late Republic, everything kind of blurs a little bit into mythology, and mm. so we're, we're never entirely sure, you know, who's being spoken about, whether, you know, they, they, it's, there are f- certain figures who are a little bit vague and mysterious before mm. then, so in kind of Western Western history. Um, so I think with Cicero, he's interesting because we have his letters, we have you know his his kind of uh, speeches and so on so he he's a well documented figure and we can see how his personality changes so there's a, we can form a kind of in modern language we can form a kind of psychological profile of him and we we get a feeling for the kind of person he is um you don't always get that. i mean other, other sources are unreliable so mm. when he's writing about you know the the 12 caesars or whatever they, they yeah. it, it's it's a lot of gossip and hearsay, and he's writing long after these people have died in most of the cases. So with with Cicero, he's there, he's in the moment, and you get a, you definitely get a sense of who he is when you mm. from the letters, I think. Um, so yeah, so I think that's why he remains an interesting character, because he's he's kind of the first personality of Rome that we get. Everyone else is is a, is an almost mythological figure, um, and so you know. But, uh, but I think with him, yeah, we get a
0: sense of who he actually was on a day to day basis. Mm.
3: Um,
0: the series uh, begins with the trial of Sextia, uh, Sextius Roscius, uh,
1: yeah. which is
0: a very sort of. I'm going to be, going to be
1: fluffing the pronunciations all the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Sextius yeah. Roscius.
0: Uh, it's, you know, sort of like one of the most um, significant trials of the sort of like uh, period, particularly with how it relates to um, Sulla and Christognes and, and, and the state of Rome um, what do you think it is about this sort of this particular trial that so sort of like inflames the imagination because I mean when I was doing um, ancient history at school this was one of the sort of the, the uh, cases that we were taught uh, there have been um, I think there was a, a, a TV play about that particular case as well what do you think it is about this particular case i think i think it it's
1: just it's it it's just it ended up being kind of timeless because i think we still tell those kind of stories it's got a good story um and i think that's ultimately it, is when you read that uh, uh, you know compared with some of the other murder trials you might have worked on mm. it, it you know the, the, and that we have that he's documented with this one there's actually Lots of intrigue, and there's you know, it's a son accused of murdering his father, the punishment for which was horrendous. Mm,
3: yeah,
1: and <laughs> guilty. Um, and there's there's kind of murmurings of corruption and all the rest of it. I mean, I know there, there are some classicists and some historians who think Sextus Roscius was probably guilty. Mm. <laughs> um, Cicero leaves us with the impression that he, he was innocent, but of course, court cases in those days it wasn't based on forensics or mm. an eyewitness testimony, it was based on which lawyer could could argue the case more convincingly so um but i think it still has even despite those differences i think it still has um it's it's quite perry mason you know it's mm. still that kind of feeling to it uh it, it feels like a courtroom drama so it, it feels familiar to us um and th- therefore it lends itself well to drama and i think yeah mm. i think it's, so i think that's why it's the one that people go back to, and it's one that appeals to dramatists, really. And it's an early case of his, so it's, mm.
0: it's kind of important for Cicero's development as a character as well. Uh, now, um, talking about his development as a character, of course there is um, your great series on Big Finish, which sort of chronicles the, the um, earlier stages mm. of his life. And there are also the um, novels written by Robert Harris that sort of encompasses his, o- his whole life. How do you think um, your sort of like characterization of Cicero differs from Harris's or do you think that they're sort of like similar or... Well, I've, I've not read the Robert Harris books and I think I kind of, when we
1: started doing the series, I made a conscious effort not to because mm. I didn't want, I didn't want to either end, end up too similar to that or or to go the other way and end up creating this Cicero. It was, it was so... Outlandishly, not like the person that we read yeah. in his own letters and so on. Um, so I can't really I can't really comment on how, how he's depicted in the Robert Harris. But um, the, the only sort of depiction I was overly familiar with is um, oh god I can't think of the actor's name David thing in Rome. It's David and I can't think of. His oh name. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, But in the TV series Home, uh, Rome, the HBO series, uh, and uh, David Bamber is it David Bamber? anyway so yeah. yeah that was the the depiction that i was kind of most familiar with and that is him right at the end of his life that's the, you know as the as the republic is coming to an end uh, where he's perhaps maybe a slightly more cynical character but you know still becomes a kind of martyr to uh, to tyranny you know, to, the, you know where he, where he's uh, you know he's he's basically assassinated by somebody who likes him you know mm. yeah. people to like him but um uh, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, like I said, we, with this, this series, it is very much the first kind of couple of years of him forging a career, uh, and it just so happened that in those few, in in that year or two, a lot of things happened to him. You know, he got married and went off on this kind of gap year, <laughs> for, for want of a better description, uh, over to Greece and uh, Asia Minor and and so on, and. Um, so yeah, so it was a very interesting year but it, but at that time, but he like, like i said on if you if you read the letters and read the speeches and just look at his history, he changes and he does mature and uh, in some ways he is kind of corrupted by mm. the power that he ends up having um he does things which probably would have shocked him as a younger man mm. i think um you know he's not this kind of as a, as a young man he's not this kind of woke. <laughs> you know, liberal figure because he, he owns slaves and, yeah. he's, and he's a terrific snob and and all the rest of it because I think you know coming from a family that had worked its way up I think he's he's always got a bit of a chip on his shoulder mm. about and things like that but um so yeah he's not a modern figure but I think he did get more conservative by their own standards as he mm. as he got older um, but yeah like I said I can't compare that to to the to the
0: Robert Harris character because yeah. I've not read the books. <laughs> um, there are a lot of comparisons, though, made recently, particularly in the press, between um, figures from the ancient world—Cicero, Caesar, Clodius—with modern politicians. How applicable do you think these comparisons are, or do you think that they sort of like don't really work because these people exist in different contexts?
1: I I think there's some there are some shallow comparisons that can be mm.
0: made. But yeah. Like I said,
1: the, the context is so different, so different that I think they'll always just be a kind of, Oh, a fancy way of describing. It. I think populism is an interesting one because obviously that did exist in, in ancient Rome. And, and it was, it was a device that was used by certain leaders in order to rally support, where they would just kind of say what people wanted to hear, they would use a lower register of the language when they were making speeches. Mm. Uh, you know, Caesar was quite well known for that. Where I believe where you know he, he would use a lower register because then it would. And you know, d- d- people like Caesar as well. He was from the kind of wrong side of the tie You know, mm. really, he was from even though he was from quite an, you know uh, an affluent uh, you know aristocratic family. He he grew up in uh, Sabiru, so you know he Mm. grew up in in what was essentially a slum, but in a big house in a slum. So yeah, so I I think yeah, there's certain comparisons to be made with populism, where people will use the masses by promising them certain things uh, to to to, to bolster their support. But um, I don't know, everything else is a bit is a bit strained. I I think. Yeah. I think there's more, I I, I always find there are more more comparisons with certainly where Britain is at the moment and where Europe is at the moment. Mm. With something like, I don't know, Italy in the 15th century, 16th century, rather than, yeah, ancient ancient Rome is just, uh, politically it's a bit too alien, I think. Mm. You know, it's democracy doesn't, even uh, the republic, it's democracy doesn't resemble the democracy we have. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a bit too alien for those comparisons to actually have much weight. Mm. Um,
0: now, one of the things that uh, I found interesting, there was a um, documentary thing on Radio 4 a few years ago about Cicero. And I think, I can't, it might have been Robert Harris, but someone commented that they thought that uh, politicians like Cicero don't really exist now because... Um, Uh, Of the way that Cicero sort of like uh, was very much a lawyer who evolved into a politician, but still had a sort of like a an element of the of of the of the legal uh, Mm. brain about him. Do you think that um, in terms of the way that we have politicians now, that perhaps the the reason that they go into politics isn't perhaps in the same way that Cicero uh, did because of his legal career and because of 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 wanting to um, boost uh, his legal career. Do you think there's sort of like more of an aim towards being a politician for the sake of a pol- being a politician, rather than for a particular advancement or or cause?
1: Well, well, the interesting thing, one of the interesting things with Cicero is that he was quite rare at the time for coming not from a military background, even though mm. he'd done a stint in the army it was very, he didn't really achieve much in the army, he didn't rise through the ranks or anything like that, and so yeah, he he didn't come from a military background, we, we was most of the people who ended up consul, and then obviously almost all of the people who ended up being emperor after that, mm. were from a military background, you know, they were all kind of high ranking within the the, the, the Roman army Um, so, I, I but, yeah, I think, yeah, the, you, you wouldn't get that class of politicians these days because mm. it's a totally different sphere. And it's, a, a, I think, the means by which politicians, you know, politicians had to appeal to a smaller percentage of the population mm. back then. They could use popular support. They could use the masses and the plebs to kind of win win things over yeah. and, and to get the impression that, oh, well, if you, if you vote for anyone else, there's going to be trouble kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> It was always it was almost like a yeah you know, kind of protection racket in a way. Oh yeah, you, you wouldn't want you wouldn't want riots, you know. So um, yeah. So uh, politicians had to appeal to a smaller percentage of the population. Um, they could do so with very long speeches, and they could do so with lots of backroom shaking of hands. Mm. And politicians, they can they can they, there's still a lot of backroom shaking of hands. But I think everything's has to be more sound bitey and it has to be more generic and it has to be so i I don't think yeah i don't Mm -hmm. think yeah it's again like i said i think that the 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 it's an alien world to us what they what people had to do Mm. in order to persuade other people to go along with them was 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 completely different
0: uh well we're coming to the end of uh this part of the podcast thank you very much Uh, for joining me David I'd just like to ask uh, one final question Mm. where do you think Cicero stands in the history of influential figures because I know that there was a famous phrase that history could be divided into before Cicero and after Cicero
3: Mm.
0: where do you think he stands in comparison to other significant figures of history I I
1: think he's interesting because he gives us the kind
0: of Timeless model
1: of a person with power and influence who stands up against an idea of tyranny mm. um, very early on. So, I mean, there are obviously there are other kind of figures, but they tend to be revolutionaries or, or you know or rebels or whatever. Mm. For him, it, it's words. You know, he, he yeah. gets. He's probably one of the earlier figures that we have where. I mean, there were there were you know, figures in ancient Greece and so on, but I think yeah, he gets in trouble for what he says, and is executed for what he says, mm. um, and for having certain opinions. And so I think that is something which echoes down, and you know, we still have with us now is this idea that you could be imprisoned or whatever, or, or banished, mm-hmm. sent into exile for having the wrong opinions. I think so that 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 will always that will always echo and i think we'll always look back to that and the fact that you know he had his was it his tongue nailed to the door of the senate yeah. Or yeah, after yeah. <laughs> after he was murdered um so i think that's timeless i think also that there are just things that you know there there are things in his in, in his treatise on uh on rhetoric hmm. which still th- those you know still apply i think there's still techniques um, there's a great book by Sam Leith, I think it's called uh, "Are You Talking to Me," which I read before mm. starting work on Cicero. I'd, re- I'd read it before and then I reread it um, just because it was. He's re- he's very good at kind of breaking down Cicero's very long yeah, yeah. <laughs> rhetoric into into kind of stuff that is is maybe more easily understood by the mm. likes of me. Um, and yeah, and and it it is just surprising how people are still using those techniques and people use those techniques without realizing what they're doing mm. that's the other interesting thing so that that kind of even though we speak a different language even though you know the language Cicero was writing and speaking in is kind of to all intents and purposes dead um I think that influence carries on and obviously he was being influenced by others so it's not it didn't it doesn't start with him mm. I think a lot of a lot of what we would now recognise as history starts there, you know, a mm. documented, you know, verifiable history.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Before it, because before then, with Herodotus and stuff, it is it's it is borderline mythology. Yeah. It does veer into myth-making.
0: Well, thank you very much for being on the uh, podcast, David. Oh, thank uh, you for having me. I'd highly recommend that uh, you buy the Cicero series uh, from Big Finish. It's a excellent series, and I don't think that you could have uh, a better representation of the young Cicero, so thank you once again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Debated Podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, follow us on Twitter, at Podcast. and if you want to send us an email, send it to thedebatedpodcast at com. Don't forget that Uh, for a better politics is launching on the 24th so in a couple of days Uh, i would uh, highly encourage you to find out more about that and um, thank you for listening to the episode hope you listen to the next one